This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. The Humanist Report podcast is funded by viewers like you through Patreon and PayPal. To support the show, visit patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member at humanistreport.com. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Humanist Report Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 143rd edition of the program. Today is May 17th, and before we get into the news, I want to take a moment to thank all of our newest Patreon and PayPal contributors that signed up just this last week, and that includes Arthur Danowicz, Dylan Monks, E.R., Gilham Harrison, Jack Odira, John N. Linder, Lula269, Mac McCreary, Mary Dam, Nathan Earl, Patrick M. Freeze, Richard Gahant, Rob Scott Smith, Sebastian Roll, Wolfgang Lang, and Xavier Zervisco. So thank you so much to all of these kind individuals. If you'd also like to support the podcast, you could visit humanistreport.com support or check out patreon.com forward slash humanist report. So on today's show, we've got quite a bit. We'll kick off the show by talking about how Israel decided to murder more than 50 Palestinian protesters. And the United States is blaming Hamas for the incident, alleging that they incited the violence. So we'll talk about why that is a laughably stupid excuse to deflect from Israel's repeated abuse of Palestinian human rights. We'll also discuss how Donald Trump might actually punish our European allies if they decide to remain in the Iran nuclear deal. And when it comes to peace talks with North Korea, things have suddenly taken a turn for the worst. I'll tell you what's happened. And additionally, we'll discuss why Fox News has now effectively become state-run media. And when it comes to Trump's CIA nominee, Gina Haspel, another ex-CIA officer wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post saying that she should be confirmed because she's a woman. I'm not joking. Also, the White House suppressed a water contamination report in order to avoid a PR nightmare. And in this week's oligarchy news, the co-founder of Home Depot called Bernie Sanders the Antichrist. And the DCCC is still fighting against candidates that support Medicare for All, but we now know that it is also raking in cash from health insurance lobbyists. And while we're discussing Democrats, we'll talk about what Ralph Nader had to say about why they're so ineffective in the era of Trump. And finally, I'll provide you with an update on the status of net neutrality. And before we close out the episode, we'll talk to progressive Allison Hartson, who's running against corporate Democrat Dianne Feinstein. So all of these topics will be discussed in today's show. Hopefully you guys enjoy it. So, as most of you know by now, the United States just opened up its embassy in Jerusalem, and for oligarchs who are in support of Israel's rogue, right-wing, international, law-violating, criminal government, well, they were ecstatic. Trump's daughter and son-in-law took selfies with Israel's war criminal prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu. President Donald Trump took to Twitter to congratulate Israel, and as Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin and Ivanka Trump revealed the official seal of the U.S. Embassy, a small crowd, including Israeli hardliners and right-wing billionaires like Sheldon Adelson, cheered on the embassy's opening. On behalf of the 45th president of the United States on America, we welcome you officially and for the first time to the embassy of the United States here in Jerusalem, the capital of Israel. Thank you. 
Now, while those oligarchs were celebrating, a mere 50 miles away from Jerusalem in Gaza, protests broke out, as was expected, but they've also been protesting for the past six weeks. And as usual, Israel chose to not hold back, and once again, they brutalized protesters. So as the Chicago Tribune reports, Israeli forces shot and killed 57 Palestinians and injured more than 2,700 during mass protests Monday along the Gaza border, while just a few miles away, Israel and the U.S. held a festive inauguration ceremony for the new American embassy in contested Jerusalem. In addition, a baby died from tear gas inhalation, the Gaza Health Ministry said, bringing the overall death toll to 58. Now, when right-wingers hear about this news, they'll say, well, look, this was warranted because there were protesters who were throwing rocks at the IDF, and also some of them might have even had Molotov cocktails. But ask yourself this, was Israel's response proportional? Do you really believe that? Because if you are a rational thinking person, then I don't know how you can make that assumption, seeing that Israel's military was literally using sniper rifles to mow down protesters. And additionally, as this next video will demonstrate, they used drones to distribute tear gas around the protests. Now, as tear gas rained down on them, they were using tennis rackets to defend themselves and to swat it away. But I actually want to get back to the celebration because while Israel was murdering Palestinian protesters, well, back at this celebration, Jared Kushner actually had the audacity to claim how Israel was committed to, quote, freedom. Israel proves every day the boundless power of freedom. This land is the only land in the Middle East in which Jews, Muslims, and Christians, and people of all faiths participate and worship freely according to their beliefs. Israel protects women's rights, freedom of speech, and the right of every individual to reach their God-given potential. See, we have to stand up for Israel because they're the only country in the Middle East that's actually committed to freedom. Now, I know what you're thinking. How can we claim with a straight face that they're committed to freedom as they mow down protesters? Well, you see, if you ask the White House, specifically according to White House Deputy Press Secretary Raj Shah, he'll tell you that it wasn't Israel's fault after all. In fact, Hamas is the one responsible for Israel killing more than 50 peaceful Palestinian protesters. Jared Kushner in his speech pointed a finger at the Palestinians saying they were responsible for provoking violence. But given the fact that it's only Palestinians who are being killed, should Israel not shoulder some of the blame? Well, as I said earlier, we believe Hamas bears the responsibility. Look, this is a propaganda attempt. I mean, this is a, a gruesome and unfortunate propaganda attempt. I think the Israeli government has spent weeks um, trying to handle this uh, without violence. And uh, we find it very unfortunate. rocks 50 meters from the wall and were faced with sniper attack. I mean, is the White House in denial of the split-screen reality that's occurring? Again, we believe that Hamas is responsible for this. So, in other words, don't believe your lying eyes, ignore all the video evidence you saw of the IDF brutalizing peaceful Palestinian protesters, uh, because if you, in fact, accept what's the reality of the situation, well, then you're getting duped by Hamas propaganda. Congratulations, dummy.
I mean, they're saying this with a straight face, and really, this is an insult to our intelligence. They're literally rewriting history before our very eyes, and it's absolutely absurd. Their stance has consistently been, anytime Israel does anything wrong, blame Hamas no matter what. There's no room for nuance whatsoever, and this administration is doing nothing to hide their blatant lies that they're telling Americans on behalf of Israel's right-wing criminal government. Now, thankfully, there is an opposition party that can theoretically speak out against the White House's lies. However, if you were expecting the so-called Democratic Party resistance to come to the rescue here, well, then um, you shouldn't hold your breath because Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer actually released a statement in support of Donald Trump's decision to move the U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv to Israel. He said absolutely nothing about Israel's brutalization of Palestinian protesters, but he called Donald Trump's move here long overdue. And other prominent Senate Democrats that are eyeing a 2020 presidential run like Kamala Harris, Kirsten Gillibrand, Cory Booker, even Elizabeth Warren, they had nothing to say about this. Nothing whatsoever. So if the opposition party failed us here and they're not actually effectively standing up to this false narrative that Donald Trump's White House is putting out, well, then, of course, the media is going to be our backup, right? Well, actually, not necessarily, because much like Democrats, media is averse from covering this in a fair and balanced way. They don't want to say anything that could potentially ever offend Israel. So what did they do? Well, they covered this using headlines so laughably vague you could tell that they were just apprehensive about publishing anything that would portray Israel in a negative light, even if Israel is obviously guilty here. But once basically everyone made fun of the New York Times here, well, we essentially forced their hand and made them give the article the objective headline it deserved in the first place. So by and large, to summarize the situation, we opened an embassy in Jerusalem for Israel and those opposed to it who exercised their right to free speech. They were murdered, and essentially nobody with power or influence had much to say about it. That is the state of American politics. They will lie to our faces, tell us to not believe what we see, and nobody seems outraged about it. So, I actually do want to share with you a clip of a rare moment that we saw on the mainstream cable news shows where an MSNBC host had a genuine human reaction to this. It's important that the foreign policy is generating uncertainty, deep uncertainty, right? That it's cascading chaos. But the foreign policy is not what the Congress members of the House and Senate are going campaigning on right now. They need to campaign on domestic issues where they have a stance. So while Donald Trump is doing this and may look for a deflection, it's not necessarily going to help the, the midterms. All of that's important, and all of those babies are dead. All of those people are dead. Yeah, I... They're dead. And, and we're talking about racehorses. I mean, the politics. I mean, there are a lot of folks who are dead today. For what? I'm sorry. I've, this is me being a moralist, I suppose. No, I understand. And the, and the White House today, their response to that was it is Hamas's fault and they're using them as, as tools for, for propaganda. That's like saying the children in the Children's March of Birmingham, it was their fault that Bull Connor attacked them. That was probably the most poignant point I've seen made about this anywhere. 
kudos to that pundit for actually saying what empathetic, rational-thinking human beings feel when they see the IDF mowing down peaceful Palestinian protesters. Now, on top of all of the absurdity of everyone refusing to condemn what Israel did here, well, Donald Trump's administration is still maintaining, at least, that they're committed to peace. I'm not even kidding about that. President Trump was very clear that his decision and today's celebration do not reflect a departure from our strong commitment to lasting peace, a peace that overcomes the conflicts of the past in order to give our children a brighter and more boundless future. I believe peace is within reach if we dare to believe that the future can be different from the past. Trump's administration literally blamed Hamas for Israel's murder of Palestinian protesters, and they have the gall to still preach about peace. It's like we're living in the fucking twilight zone. Ask yourself this. Put yourself in the shoes of a Palestinian. If you see the U.S. government defending Israel when they do indefensible things, when they commit crimes against humanity, when you see Donald Trump move their embassy from Tel Aviv to a disputed territory, do you really think that Palestinians feel as though the United States is a neutral arbiter capable of facilitating a fair outcome in the event they ever come to the table and try to come up with a peaceful solution to the conflict? Of course not. They'd be dumb to believe that the U.S. is on their side. The United States is not on the side of Palestine whatsoever. They're on Israel's side. And no matter what Israel does, we still defend them. Now, there's still going to be people who comment and say, well, look, the Molotov cocktails, the rocks. Well, why don't you look at the death count? No Palestinians were, um, or no Israeli um, military people were injured. None of them were killed. Nearly 3,000 Palestinians were injured and almost 60 were killed. Ask yourself, who is in the wrong here? If you still say it's Palestine and Palestinians, you're not a serious person. It's no surprise to anyone that's been paying attention that John Bolton, who is Donald Trump's current national security advisor, is the biggest warmonger in the country. Now, he's showing us just how big of a warmonger he really is because his new foreign policy plan includes potentially even punishing allies that we have in Europe in order to pursue his ultimate goal of regime change in Iran. Not even kidding. So this is what he said about this subject in an interview with Jake Tapper. So President Trump said this week that, quote, any nation that helps Iran in its quest for nuclear weapons could also be strongly sanctioned by the United States. Is the United States going to sanction European companies that do business with Iran? I think the issue here is what the Europeans are going to do. If they're going to see that it's uh, not in their interest to stay in the deal, uh, we're going to have to watch what the Iranians do. They'd love to stay in the deal. Why shouldn't they? They got everything they wanted uh, from the Obama administration. Uh, but I think the Europeans uh, uh, will see that it's in their interest ultimately to come along with us. I, well, I, with all due respect, I've been speaking to European diplomats, and that's not the impression I get. Well, they, that's, not they, the, that's not the impression now. They, I mean, they say they're going to stay in the deal. And, and they may try to do so, in, in part because I think despite the complete consistency of President Trump uh, in his opposition to the deal, opposed to it as candidate Trump, opposed to it as President-elect Trump, opposed to it as President Trump, many people, including apparently uh, former Secretary of State John Kerry, 
uh, thought that we never would get out of it. Now, I, I don't know uh, how to explain why people could miss what the president was saying. So I think at the moment there's some feeling in Europe that uh, they're really surprised we got out of it, really surprised at the reimposition of strict sanctions. I think that will sink in and we'll see what happens then. The president's very clear. He wants to discuss the larger threat posed by Iran around the region. And this is what he discussed with President Macron. He's talked about it with Chancellor Merkel. He's talked about it with Prime Minister May. Not just Iran's nuclear threat now, the threat in the future, uh, the ballistic missile programs, and the instability uh, right. that Iran is causing around the region. But with all due respect, I didn't get an answer to the question. Is the U.S. going to impose sanctions on European companies that continue to do business with Iran? I think I did give the answer. Well, you the said answer, we'll see. The answer is it's possible. It depends possible. on the conduct of other governments. Okay. Wow. I don't even know what to say about that. That is next level insanity, hence the uh, thumbnail. <laughs> I mean, what he is saying is the United States here, we don't give a fuck about what these European countries think about the Iran nuclear deal. If they don't follow our lead then we're going to punish European companies and by proxy, really, punish European countries. I mean, this is, this is serious. Quite frankly, it's unhinged behavior. Donald Trump's administration is being so belligerent that they're even willing to be openly hostile towards our allies in Europe if they stand in the way of our goal for regime change in Iran. Now, ask yourself this. If Donald Trump says that the United States got the shit end of the stick with regard to the Iran deal, hence why we pulled out, why would he care if other countries remain in the deal? So long as the United States is not getting taken advantage of here, then shouldn't that be his only concern? But you see, if our European allies remain in the deal, then the deal itself will largely remain intact, which also means that Iran will remain in compliance with the deal and they won't pursue a nuclear weapon, which is bad for warmongers in Donald Trump's administration like John Bolton, because if they're not pursuing a nuclear weapon, then you can't punish them for pursuing a nuclear weapon. You can't overthrow their regime. I'll say it again. Their ultimate goal is to get Iran to actually build a nuke or at least do enough to where they can claim that Iran is building a nuke because they want to invade Iran. It's been the goal of neocons for decades now. So as long as our European allies remain in this deal, then really there's no way that American warmongers can justify regime change. So John Bolton wants regime change so bad he's willing to tank our relationship with Europe just to get what he wants. And look, make no mistake about it, Donald Trump is the one that initially signaled first that he'd be willing to punish our European allies if they do remain in this deal. But if you think that Donald Trump came up with that idea on his own accord, then you don't know about just how influential John Bolton is, because I have no doubt in my mind that John Bolton is the one that planted this seed in Donald Trump's ear. Perhaps he's trying to make Donald Trump think that this was his idea to potentially punish European allies, but John Bolton had a say. Now, I want to play a clip of an interview that Jake Tapper did with Bernie Sanders, because Bernie does a really fantastic job explaining just how influential John Bolton is as a foreign policy advisor. Uh, this is a man who was a key advisor to President Bush, George W. Bush, in urging him to get involved and to invade Iraq because supposedly Iraq had weapons of mass destruction. As I think most Americans now know, uh, that 
effort in Iraq was the worst foreign policy uh, disaster in the modern history of this country. We lost 4,400 American soldiers, brave soldiers, 31,000 wounded, half a million Iraqis dead. And Bolton talks about, appropriately so, the increased influence that Iran now has in Iraq. Yeah, that's true. And that's precisely because of the war in Iraq. So I think you have some people, unfortunately, in Washington, Bolton being one of them, uh, who believe that war and militarism is the answer to everything. We have spent over $2 trillion in the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, and yet today, our infrastructure here in the United States is crumbling. We have millions of people can't afford to go to college or are leaving college deeply in debt. Maybe, just maybe, we might want to be investing in the American people rather than inflated military budgets and more and more wars. So there you have it. John Bolton is pursuing his ruthless agenda as aggressively as we expected him to. And he was very influential in the Bush years, and he's already proving to be a force in Donald Trump's White House. So this guy is very dangerous, and he has all this power and influence and an ear to the president at a time when Israel and Iran are literally trading rockets with each other, which could be another ticket for entry to Iran in his eyes, because, you know, he could subvert the Iran deal altogether and claim that we've got to go there and invade Iran in order to defend Israel. There are multiple ways to ultimately get to his goal of regime change in Iran, and I don't trust this guy. He is the individual who just said, I believe it was last year, that we're going to be celebrating in Tehran in 2019, meaning he wants regime change as early as next year. And that's why before 2019, we here will celebrate in Tehran. Thank you very much. So don't trust anything this guy says. He is a warmonger's warmonger, and he will stop at nothing to get his goal, which is regime change in Iran and potentially anywhere where he's able to influence Donald Trump to invade. Well, I've got some unfortunate news to report. The prospect of peace with North Korea is now in jeopardy because its leader, Kim Jong-un, is threatening to cancel his meeting with President Donald Trump in Singapore. So, what the hell is going on and why is he changing his mind all of a sudden? Well, as Brett Samuels of The Hill reports, North Korea on Tuesday said a planned summit next month between President Trump and Kim Jong-un is at risk because of joint military exercises between the United States and South Korea. North Korea said it was ending talks with South Korea and a confusing statement from the country's state news agency strongly suggested that the drills threatened the fate of the historic summit. The United States will also have to undertake careful deliberations about the fate of the planned North Korea-U.S. summit in light of this provocative military ruckus jointly conducted with the South Korean authorities, North Korea's Korean Central News Agency said in a statement first reported by Yonhap News Agency in South Korea. The news agency said the drills between South Korean and U.S. Air Forces are an intentional military provocation to undermine recent diplomatic talks. State Department spokeswoman Heather Naort, however, said there had been no talks between the United States and North Korea about the statement attributed to the North Korean news agency. I just saw that report as I was coming out here, said Naort. 
at an on-camera press briefing. She said the military exercises are planned well in advance and that Kim said previously that he understands the need and the utility of continuing the joint exercises. The Pentagon later issued a response to the reports, emphasizing that the defensive nature of the drills has not changed. The purpose of the training is to enhance the Republic of Korea-U.S. alliance's ability to defend the Republic of Korea and enhance interoperability and readiness, the Pentagon said, referring to South Korea, whose official name is the Republic of Korea. While we will not discuss specifics, the defensive nature of these combined exercises has been clear for many decades and has not changed. The drills have been a long-time aggravation for North Korea, which has previously condemned the exercises as acts of aggression. But North Korea had indicated as part of the talks with South Korea and the United States that it would no longer oppose the joint military drills. So this is a really complex situation. There's a lot going on. So on one hand, Kim Jong-un initially said that he knows about these drills that were scheduled and he wouldn't oppose them, but now he's changing his tune and he is saying that he's not okay with them. So he is suddenly flipping the script. So on his part, that doesn't show that he's being a good faith actor. However, on the other hand, is it true when he states that these military exercises are meant to be provocative? Yes, he absolutely is correct about that. It's a show of strength, and really, it's an implicit threat. So if the White House also really wanted to secure peace, knowing how volatile Kim Jong-un is, they should have not conducted these drills. So I mean, to show that they are acting in good faith, they could have canceled them. But they stayed here, well, you know, these were planned long in advance. And cancel them. If you're trying to secure peace, why would you go along with these scheduled military exercises knowing that they would get under Kim Jong-un's skin? Doesn't that seem dumb? Doesn't it seem counterintuitive? Doesn't it seem like you're going against your own goal here? So, I mean, there are reasons to be mad at Kim Jong-un and the United States and South Korea here for both really putting the prospect of peace in jeopardy because they're all acting like boneheads. Now, furthermore, is it also true that Kim Jong-un knew that they would continue with these military exercises, but is suddenly getting cold feet about meeting with Donald Trump? That's also possible. Now, the story is actually changing pretty quickly here because after this article was released, just hours later, another article came out discussing how Kim Jong-un actually doesn't really like the terms of what the United States is requiring. So he's not in favor of unilateral disarmament. So he doesn't want the United States to back him into a corner and feels as though that's what's happening. Personally, I'm surprised that Kim Jong-un was even willing to consider meeting with Donald Trump after the United States has shown time and again that they never hold up their end of bargains. I mean, they overthrew Gaddafi after he gave up his weapons of mass destruction, and Donald Trump just chose to go back on an agreement that the U.S. secured with Iran. So our word means shit. Kim Jong-un, as a rational actor, would be smart to not believe that we're willing to hold up our end of the deal, seeing as how we violate agreements all the time. Bilateral, multilateral, we don't give a shit. If we think that it's not in our best interest, even if it's arbitrary, we're going to withdraw. So I can see how he wouldn't want to denuclearize because if he does, then he has no leverage. He has no deterrent to stop the United States from invading 
his country in the event they just feel like they want to do it willy-nilly. And I mean, this is this is what people in Donald Trump's administration have been advocating for. Mike Pompeo, uh, John Bolton, they've advocated for regime change in North Korea. So, I mean, this isn't super surprising given the context of the situation, given the United States' history to not hold up our end of bargains. But at the same time, if Kim Jong-un really wanted peace here, then he would know that the United States would probably still conduct these military exercises with South Korea until they actually hash out a deal, until, you know, they they dot the I's and cross the T's. So um, this was a really convoluted situation. And we've seen in the past that both Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump have done things to escalate tensions. So I wouldn't be surprised if they're both equally culpable in some way here, you know, behind the scenes. We don't know what's going on. So they're they're both potentially at fault. But who suffers from this is really the people who want peace. It really seemed after Kim Jong-un held the meeting with South Korean Prime Minister Moon Jae-in that peace was possible. But now it kind of seems like, you know, um, we're getting further away from that ultimate goal. And really, I do not trust the warmongers in Donald Trump's administration, because if Kim Jong-un doesn't come to the table, then what do you think his Secretary of State and National Security Advisor will be telling him to do? They'd be telling him probably to take military action against Kim Jong-un. So I think really it would behoove Kim Jong-un to come to the table. But I mean, he has legitimate reasons to not want to come to the table with the United States because we lie all the time and go back on our words. So all I all I can say about this is that let's all cross our fingers and our toes and hope for peace. But at this point, it's now... It's not all in jeopardy, which which is really, really disheartening. So there are a number of reasons why we should prosecute war criminals, government officials who commit crimes against humanity. First and foremost, the most obvious reason is that their actions are morally reprehensible. As human beings, we should have empathy for other human beings. So individuals that inflict human suffering on a mass scale should be punished because that's the right thing to do. Now, second of all, if we don't punish war criminals, then their successors will know that they can do the same things, commit the same exact crimes, and get away with it. But not only that, because as former vice president and war criminal Dick Cheney is proving, war criminals will also continue to advocate for more war crimes because they haven't been punished for them. Now, as Newsweek explains here, Dick Cheney would restart the United States' torture program. So this is exactly why we have to prosecute war criminals, because my guess would be that Dick Cheney would be a lot less enthusiastic about advocating for war crimes if he was doing it behind bars. He is an individual who should be rotting away in prison for the rest of his life, but instead, he's openly advocating for more war crimes to be committed. But you see, in America, we don't just not punish individuals who commit crimes against humanity, who commit literal war crimes. We actually reward them with powerful positions in government. And by now, you all know that Donald Trump nominated Gina Haspel to replace Mike Pompeo as the CIA director. 
And she's a disgusting individual, not only because she joyfully tortured human beings while she oversaw a CIA black site in Thailand, but she also destroyed evidence of said torture. However, a former CIA operations officer named Karen DeLacy claims that we should overlook the fact that Gina Haspel is a war criminal because she's a woman. I'm not joking about that. This was literally an argument someone made, a supposedly serious person made, in favor of Gina Haspel. DeLacy actually penned an op-ed in the Washington Joke, I mean Washington Post, who should have never published it, but nonetheless they did, and it's titled, Gina Haspel Can Help Fix the CIA's Gender Problem. Well, thank God. <laughs> Might not solve their torture problem, but at least it'll fix their gender uh, issue, right? I mean, is that not the most neoliberal headline you've ever read in your entire life? I never thought that the common goal of equality would devolve into discussions about war criminals getting adequate gender representation at the fucking CIA. I mean, this is ridiculous. These people are so superficial and vapid in their political ideology that they don't give a damn about the crimes these criminals committed. They only care that human rights atrocities are being committed by both men and women. Donald Trump actually invoked identity politics as well, citing how, you know, Gina Haspel is a woman. Why would Democrats be opposed to a woman? Hint, hint, nudge, nudge. So if you don't like her, well, I mean, you could fill in the blank. It must be because you're sexist. Now, unfortunately for everyone, the way in which Republicans are now invoking identity politics to defend Gina Haspel, well, I mean, that argument kind of has a leg to stand on now because they are pointing out the inherent hypocrisy with Democrats because 36 of them that now oppose Gina Haspel also voted for President Obama's pick to lead the CIA in 2013, John Brennan, who was also a torturous war criminal, just like Gina Haspel, who, like her, should also be rotting away behind bars right now. In fact, even Bernie Sanders, a progressive, voted for John Brennan in 2013. And when Jake Tapper asked them about this vote and asked them to defend his decision and asked them how he could defend you know, his vote for John Brennan but be against Gina Haspel, isn't this a double standard? Bernie Sanders, for the first time in a while, really had nothing meaningful to say. Senator, I want to ask you, one of President Trump's uh, major nominees is on the docket for the Senate this week. Gina Haspel, nominated to be the next CIA director, the first woman CIA director. You've announced your opposition to that pick. Now, I have to ask, both Gina Haspel and former CIA director John Brennan were in the CIA when enhanced interrogation techniques, otherwise known by human rights groups as torture, were used. A lot of people who oppose Haspel's nomination now over waterboarding, etc., voted yes when John Brennan was nominated by President Obama back in 2013, including you. Why? Why is Brennan okay, but Gina Haspel is not? Well, on this one, I would agree with John McCain uh, and tell you that I think, and, and tell you what our leaders in, in the armed forces say. If the United States condones uh, torture, uh, for other people, then that subjects our own men and women who are captured uh, to be tortured as well. Uh, I think Brennan did a good job uh, in his position. Uh, I have serious reservations about uh, this nominee, and I will uh, oppose him. But you didn't have reservations about John Brennan. You voted for John Brennan. I guess my question is, well, whatever reservations you have about Gina Haspel, why didn't they apply well, to Obama's it's not, nominee? Well, it's not just 
Yeah, Jake, it's not just the issue of torture. Uh, it goes, I think, deeper than that, and that is uh, the uh, foreign policy that we have seen uh, from uh, Mr. Trump, uh, which was repeated today by, by John Bolton, something that I also uh, strongly disagree with. Your former which is one of the reasons I voted. I voted against Pompeo as well. Yeah, that, that was incredibly difficult to watch because Bernie Sanders, like a lot of Democrats currently, are backed into a corner. But here's how I would have responded if I were in Bernie Sanders' position. I would have said, look, you know what? I was wrong. And you're right. This is hypocritical. I should have never voted for John Brennan. But unfortunately, I gave President Obama the benefit of the doubt. And I supported his nominee when in actuality, I should have held Obama to a higher standard because he claims to have the moral high ground. He claims to be against torture. So he should never be rewarding war criminals with high government positions, he should have prosecuted them. So I was wrong then, and now I'm righting that wrong by opposing Gina Haspel. That should have been Bernie Sanders' response. But unfortunately, I mean, Republicans just know how to play politics better than Democrats, and they've backed them into a corner to where now it seems as though Gina Haspel will almost certainly get confirmed. Democrats know this is the case, which is why many of them are now announcing support for Gina Haspel. We currently have, count them, five Democrats who will be supporting Gina Haspel. That includes Joe Manchin, Joe Donnelly, Heidi Heitkamp, Mark Warner, and recently Bill Nelson just announced that he will be supporting her confirmation. Now, because there are two Republicans who will be opposing Haspel, including Rand Paul and John McCain, that means that Democrats are single-handedly making her confirmation a reality. They could resist, like they claimed they would do when Trump was first elected, and stop her from getting nominated. But in fact, in this case, it is because of them that Gina Haspel will be confirmed. This is wrong. As a society, we have to come out and say no to war criminals. I shouldn't have to even state the fact that we should never reward people who committed war crimes with jobs. They should be isolated. They should be unhirable in American politics. But, I mean, they get rewarded constantly. And yes, neoliberals, that includes female war criminals as well. Because think about this. When we talk about our commitment to human rights and respect for humanity and repeat these beliefs over and over and over again, we look like goddamn fools to everyone who's watching around the world because they know it's all just lip service. We don't care about human rights because we are promoting human rights violators within our own government. And I saw a comment on Twitter. I don't remember who said it. I think it was Glenn Greenwald. And it made a lot of sense. He said, if Gina Haspel gets confirmed, that will say more about our own government and society than it does about her. And that couldn't be more correct. Because these types of people should never, ever have a chance. But welcome to America in 2018, where progressives can barely win because neoliberal establishment Democrats rig primaries against them. But war criminals are promoted all the time. It is a sick world we are living in. It, it's, I just, I don't have the words to express just how disgusting this is. So, I mean, she's probably going to get confirmed. If I am wrong here, I will happily eat my own words. But unfortunately, it doesn't seem as though Democrats are going to put up a fight. 
The always insufferable libertarian columnist for The Wall Street Journal, Peggy Noonan, recently interviewed the co-founder of Home Depot, Ken Lango, and in an article titled Wisdom of a Non-Idiot Billionaire, Langone called Bernie Sanders the Antichrist. <laughs> Makes sense. Now, let's just take a moment to reflect the irony of that headline. The headline is suggesting that Ken Lagome uh, stands out from the rest of the billionaires. He's a non-idiot billionaire, but he's calling Bernie Sanders the Antichrist. Calling anyone the Antichrist is inherently idiotic, but she's trying to portray him as one of the good guys. Now, before we even get into the article, ask yourself this. Why would someone who's worth $3.3 billion think Bernie Sanders, a self-proclaimed democratic socialist, is the Antichrist? I mean, you could put two and two together, but let's go ahead and get to the article. It states, Ken Langon, 82, investor, philanthropist, and founder of Home Depot, has written an autobiography that actually conveys the excitement of business, of starting an enterprise that creates a job that creates a family, of the joy of the deal and the place of imagination in the making of a career. Its hokey and ebullient name is I Love Capitalism, which I think makes his stand clear. Why did he write it? I asked him by phone. He wanted to show gratitude to inspire the young. If I can make it, everyone can. And he wanted young voters to understand socialism is not the way. In 2016, I saw Bernie Sanders and the kids around him. I thought, this is the Antichrist. We have the greatest engine in the world. The wealthy have an absolute obligation to help others. Where would we be if people didn't share their wealth? I got 38 kids on Bucknell scholarships. They're all colors of the rainbow. Some are poor kids, rough around the edges. It's capitalism. He famously funds NYU slash Lagone medical center. Now, to translate what he's saying here, when he says that socialism is not the way, really what he means is that socialism, where we take from the rich and give to the poor, isn't the way. However, Donald Trump's brand of socialism, where you take from the poor and give to the rich, that's acceptable. He has no problem with that whatsoever. So, presumably, based on what he said here, his aversion to socialism stems from his belief, or rather delusion at this point, that the American dream is still alive and well. But let me read to you a few headlines, and we'll determine whether or not the American dream is still alive. Quote, the average American worker takes less vacation time than a medieval peasant. And you'd think that since they're working that hard, well, they're probably more likely to succeed, right? Well, let's look at another headline. Quote, welfare in America. Most low-wage full-time workers use food stamps. Housing assistance analysis shows. But I've got even more for you. Income inequality reaches gilded age levels, congressional report finds. A $500 surprise expense would put most Americans into debt. Student debt just hit $1.5 trillion. So, after seeing just the snapshot of the issues that normal everyday Americans face, is it still logical to deduce that the American dream is a reality? Well, sure, if you live in Canada. So when he says that if I can make it, anyone can, that's just not true. It's a platitude that's vapid, and it's always repeated by oligarchs because they're trying to cultivate legitimacy for and reinforce trust in a system that we all know is broken, that's rigged. Americans know that the economy doesn't favor the normal working individual. It favors the billionaire class, billionaires like Ken Langone. Now, my favorite part about his argument, and really the article itself, is that he tries to portray himself as one of the good guys and thinks that, you know, 
billionaire greed, generally speaking, shouldn't sour your views on billionaires overall because not all of them are greedy. For example, him, you know, the reason why he's such a good guy is because he um, put 38 kids on a scholarship. But when I read that, I thought, that's it? You're worth $3.3 billion and all you can cite to prove to us that you're a good person is putting 38 kids on a scholarship? That's it? There should be thousands of kids on a scholarship if you have that much wealth. This is why billionaires miss the point. If you're a billionaire, you're greedy. That's just the reality of the situation. I mean, the mere fact that you're hoarding that much money away from the world when there are people facing numerous crises, it's just inherently greedy. You don't just get to pay for a few dozen scholarships and donate to a medical research center and then pretentiously proclaim that you did your part and you're not greedy. If you have that much fucking money, you're greedy. That's the point. And unfortunately, it just flies right over a lot of millionaire and billionaire's heads because they don't see that having that much wealth makes them greedy inherently. By nature, being a billionaire means you are a greedy pig. And this is why we fucking hate billionaires. It's because they don't get it. They miss the point. Nobody should be a billionaire at a time when people are literally dying because they don't have health insurance. Nobody should be a billionaire when a $500 emergency would put someone into debt. If you have that much money, you are by definition a greedy pig. That's why we don't like the billionaire class. It's not because you're facing a PR dilemma. It's not because, you know, a few bad apples spoiled the bunch. The fact that there is a class of billionaires is in and of itself problematic. And make no mistake about it. He may have called Bernie the Antichrist because he's in favor of socialism. But Ken Longome is in favor of socialism as well. If he wasn't, then he would be campaigning aggressively against the tax cuts that Donald Trump just gave to him. That's socialism. That's reverse socialism, where you take from the poor and give to the rich. Because guess what's happening? In order to pay for trillions of dollars in tax cuts to the wealthiest people in this country, Donald Trump and Republicans are gutting social safety net programs. They're trying to cut Medicare, Medicaid. Just last week, Donald Trump proposed a huge $7 billion cut to the children's health insurance program. And they're doing this because they have to make up all the revenue they're losing and cutting so much taxes for billionaires. So whenever somebody talks about how they're, they just hate socialism so much, ask them how they view Donald Trump's tax plan. Ask them what their view on trickle-down economics is, and you'll see that they love socialism. Just not socialism that benefits people like you. Socialism that benefits the rich. It's evident that the DCCC, perhaps more so than any other left-leaning organization in the country, isn't just a barrier to progress, but they're now officially an enemy of the people. Because they are fighting against a policy, actively so and aggressively so, that would save lives. Why? Because they're corrupt. And as Alex Koch of TYT Investigates reports, DCCC scores cash from health insurance lobbyists as it advises candidates against Medicare for All. So make no mistake about it, even though this is legal, this is still overt corruption. It's as close to a quid pro quo as you could possibly get before it becomes officially illegal. Because think about this, they're taking money from health insurance lobbyists, one prominent health insurance lobbyist, as we'll get to in the article here, and they know damn well what that lobbyist wants. It wants them to instruct their candidates to not support Medicare for All. That's corruption. That money 
is corrupting them. It's having a corrosive influence on democracy because it doesn't matter that their own base, more than 70%, more than 80%, in fact, in some polls, support Medicare for All because they're taking this money. They're fighting against it anyway. So as the article states, in April of 2017, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee wanted to find the best way for its candidates to address the topic of health care. So it hired two research firms to conduct internal polling focused on 52 battleground districts expected to be close races in 2018. Stan Greenberg, a pollster and founding partner with Greenberg Quinlan Rosner Research, presented his findings at the offices of the Democratic National Committee and suggested that Democratic candidates should focus on flaws of Republican plans and offer proactive solutions only if asked, as The Intercept reported. Campaign finance disclosures show that one of the DCCC's biggest fundraisers is a lobbyist whose firm, subject matter, has been working for United Health Group, a health insurance giant that supports further privatizing Medicare. Subject Matters founder and top lobbyist veteran Democratic staffer turned lobbyist Steve Elmendorf has been bundling contributions for the DCCC, and in the current election cycle, he's raised at least $164,000. In total, bundlers have brought in close to $1.6 million to the DCCC in 2017 and 2018, making Elmendorf single-handedly responsible for more than 10% of the DCCC's bundled donations. On behalf of United Health Group, Elmendorf has recently lobbied Congress on a health insurer tax that is part of the Affordable Care Act. Earlier lobbying records detail the company's goal to repeal or delay the tax. In January, the tax was delayed one year and will not go into effect until 2019. Elmendorf also represents kidney healthcare company DeVita, having recently lobbied Congress on issues related to Medicare payment for end-stage renal disease and Medicare Advantage. Subject matters other corporate lobbying clients include Facebook, Ford, Goldman Sachs, and Verizon. Personally, Elmendorf has contributed 16400 to the DCCC since last year and thousands more to at least a dozen moderate Democratic candidates, none of whom have publicly supported Medicare for All. Now, I want to get back to the first part of the article where they talk about how they're instructing Democrats to only focus on the flaws in the Republicans' plan and not actually come up with proactive solutions themselves. Because guess what? We just saw a report in Politico by Jennifer Haberkorn, where she talks about how Democrats are in fact running on healthcare, but would you look at that? They don't have a message of their own, and they're only talking about how Republicans sabotaged Obamacare. That's true. Premiums have gone up since Donald Trump took office, and additionally, millions of people have lost their health insurance. And this is a direct result of Donald Trump and Republicans trying to gut the Affordable Care Act, and they've taken aim at it in a multitude of ways. They've hollowed out the law. So what they're doing is, in fact, harmful. But the problem is that if you only talk about the flaws of what the Republican Party is doing but don't have a solution of your own, that's not going to resonate with voters because the logical conclusion is, well, okay, if Republicans are destroying Obamacare, then what are you going to do? Isn't Obamacare bad? I mean, this is why Republicans have felt emboldened to destroy Obamacare. It's because Democrats do not know how to make their case and because they don't stand for anything with regard to health care, even though they claim they do. Just this last week, Tom Perez, in an interview with either someone from CNN or MSNBC, he talked about how Democrats believe health care is a right. Now, ask them if they support Medicare for all. What do they say? 
uh, we believe in defending the Affordable Care Act and, you know, we want to stop Republican attacks against it. So essentially, they've co-opted the language that progressives use to talk about Medicare for all. And they are using it as a platitude now. It means nothing now. Because when we say that healthcare is a right, we make the next logical jump and say, therefore, government should provide healthcare to everyone in the country. Nobody should die. Nobody should go bankrupt if they don't have healthcare. But then they just say, oh, healthcare is a right. Therefore, we want to make sure that everyone has access to healthcare. That doesn't mean anything. So they're focusing on just the Republican Party's flaws because the DCCC instructed them to do just that. Why? Because they are corrupt and because lobbyists are taking control of the DCCC. This is an organization that's supposed to get Democrats elected and they're fighting to make sure that only the most moderate, pro-corporate, business-friendly, big business-friendly, more specifically, Democrats get elected. Anytime there's a progressive running, like Laura Moser, well, they fund opposition re research on her, and they attack her. They try to convince and bully progressives like Levi Tilleman out of congressional races. They only want their corporate stooges in office. And this is why Democrats are losing support among millennials. This is why when you look at the generic ballot, Democrats have lost their advantage. It's because they still haven't learned their lesson. They don't stand for anything. And the reason why they don't stand for anything is because they are literally paid to not stand for anything. According to a new CNN poll conducted by SSRS, the Democratic Party's advantage over Republicans has essentially vanished. Additionally, a recent Reuters-Ipsos poll found that Democrats have actually lost ground with millennials since 2016. This really shouldn't be the case. I mean, if they were an effective opposition party, they would be dominating right now. But that's not the case, so what's happening? Well, former Green Party presidential candidate Ralph Nader recently was on Ari Melber's show on MSNBC, and I don't know why they let him on, um, maybe he snuck in there, but he was on there nonetheless, and he was talking about why Democrats are failing so hard, and he explained why they're so unpopular by dropping a huge truth bomb on them. Take a look. I think the Democrat Party should take the third party agenda away from it. They should have a living wage, just crack down on corporate crime, full Medicare for all. What do they uh, expect to do? Uh, they, they have the third party supposed to help them? A, a democracy is only democracy if it has competitive elections, contested elections, not a two-party duopoly dialing for the mm. same corporate dollars. It is a First Amendment. That's where the political bigotry comes in. But you're right. There are a lot of other things. 300,000 Democrats in Florida in 2000 voted for Bush. You're going to blame the Green Party for that? The Secretary of State and Jeb Bush shenanigans, you know all about that sure. with the ballot. You're going to blame the Green Party for that criminality? That's why I call it political bigotry. Democratic Party, stop look, stop scapegoating, look in the mirror, and ask yourself why you cannot landslide the worst, the most ignorant, the most corporate indentured, the cruelest Republican Party in history. Look in the mirror. So I agree with everything he had to say there. Yeah, I mean, um, it's just common sense. He states here, um, the Democratic Party should take the third party agenda away from it. That is only the most rational thing that progressives have been advocating the Democratic Party do since forever. Now, 
knee-jerk reactions to this will be, oh, well, you, you can't do that because the Green Party, they're too radical. But that's not actually true. The Green Party's agenda is very similar to Bernie Sanders' agenda. And if you look at Bernie Sanders' agenda and you disaggregate the issues he's talking about and you look at public opinion polls, they're all populist ideas. His policies, most of them have a majority support among the American electorate, not just Democrats. So to say that the Green Party's agenda shouldn't be adopted by Democrats because it's too radical, that's absurd. The Green Party's agenda is more in line with what the Democratic Party's core base wants, but still, they don't do what their own voters want. And we always hear about the threat of the spoiler effect, but if People within the Democratic Party, including Democratic Party loyalists, were truly afraid of third parties ruining elections, then they would be pushing vociferously for ranked choice voting. But I don't ever see Democratic Party loyalists pushing for ranked choice voting. I only hear progressives and third party voters advocating for ranked choice voting. So the people who scream the loudest about the potential for the spoiler effect and how harmful it is never say anything about ranked choice voting. Why is that? It's almost as if they're using vote shaming as a strategy to make sure that you vote Democrat no matter what, when that's just not a very smart thing to do if you are a voter. You have to make sure that you have leverage over the Democratic Party, and part of that leverage is forcing them to earn your vote every single time. Your vote should never be a given, but that's what the Democratic Party expects. They expect loyalty, and if you're not loyal, they shame you for it rather than looking in the mirror at why they failed you. Nader also states, 300,000 Democrats in Florida voted for Bush, and you're going to blame the Green Party for that? He states, stop scapegoating, look in the mirror, and ask yourself why you cannot landslide the most corporate indentured, cruelest Republican Party in history. Yeah, I couldn't have said it better myself. You can look at some pro-Obama districts that flipped this time, there are quite a bit, that went Donald Trump. And that really speaks to the failure of Hillary Clinton in 2016 and the aggregate Democratic Party. It's not just Hillary Clinton. The whole party is a failure. Their model has been a failure. Hence why they lost more than a 1,000 seats in state legislatures across the country. It's a fact. And also, we see a lot of attention being pinned to Jill Stein because she supposedly took votes away from Hillary Clinton, but nobody talks about the number of votes that Gary Johnson took away from Donald Trump. And in fact, he got a larger percentage of the vote share than Jill Stein. So he technically took more votes away from Donald Trump than Jill Stein supposedly took away from Hillary Clinton, and yet we still blame Jill Stein. Maybe it's the case, just maybe, that the Democratic Party is incompetent. Now, one thing that really boggles my mind about individuals who state the fact that we live in a majoritarian winner-take-all system is that they don't look at the strategy and the strategic need for third parties to exist. The Green Party, and really third parties in general, the Libertarian Party, the Green Party, they act as a check on the two-party duopoly in this country. I mean, if, if you realize that we live in a two-party system, a majoritarian winner-take-all system, then use third parties to your advantage. Use third parties to recalibrate the bigger parties. So, I mean, as support for the Green Party grows, as they become an increasing threat to Democrats, well, Democrats should look at that and recalibrate to the needs of their left-wing base. But they're not doing that. Anytime they get out of touch and they're misaligned with voters... They blame voters. Rather than moving back to the left, they just blame voters and claim it's their fault. 
But really, I mean, if you are a competent candidate, you never have to worry about the Green Party thread. Nobody even knew that Jill Stein was running in 2012 because Obama, even though he's a flawed president and was a flawed candidate, he was still competent enough to run a campaign that excited the base. So we didn't even know that Jill Stein was running then. Most people didn't. I certainly didn't pay any attention to her then. So, I mean, we have to stop vote shaming. We have to stop blaming everyone but the cause, which is the Democratic Party's incompetence, which is largely contingent on their corporatism. If they didn't take corporate cash, then they could actually serve their voters. They could come out swinging for Medicare for All, campaign finance reform, but they don't want to do that. Why? Because they like that corporate cash. So if it means that they lose, they're fine with losing to Republicans, no matter how disgusting and morally reprehensible that party is or becomes, if it means they get to keep their corporate cash. So, I mean, what Ralph Nader says here is really important, and if they don't want to take heed to his advice, and not just what he's saying, but what progressives generally have been saying, then they have nobody to blame but themselves when they get wiped out. And really, we all want Democrats to beat Republicans, because even if Democrats suck, well, they're better than Republicans on a number of issues, even though that line between Democrat and Republican is becoming increasingly blurred. Objectively speaking, if you're liberal, you want Democrats to win and beat out Republicans. So we all want them to win. We want them to do better. It's easier to just support them if they become progressive again, but we know that they're not going to do that so long as the corporate cash keeps rolling in. So they're going to continue to lose, but they really don't care. They're not going to be introspective. They're not going to look in the mirror because they want the money. They care more about the money than votes. And that's really what it comes down to at the end of the day. It's always been obvious that Fox News has acted as the propaganda wing of the Republican Party in the same way that MSNBC acts as the propaganda wing of the Democratic Party. But I think it's officially time to elevate Fox News' status to state media. And this promotion is contingent on the disturbingly close relationship that one Fox News host in particular has with the president. But also, it's because the frequency with which you'll see Donald Trump literally instructing his Twitter followers to tune into a particular show on Fox News, I mean, it's it's staggering. He's done this multiple times, and it shouldn't happen. News media is supposed to act as a check on government tyranny, but here you see the president so buddy-buddy with Fox News, he's promoting their shows. He's advertising for them. That's what he's using his bully pulpit for. He could be advocating for um, policies that actually help the American people, but instead he is promoting propaganda. And he's the individual that cries about fake news all the times. But one thing that really struck me this week was a story that came out in New York Magazine that details just how close Sean Hannity is to Donald Trump. Now, Sean Hannity is an individual who is supposed to hold government accountable. He's supposed to be objective. He's supposed to report the facts. And that's not happening. He is in bed with Donald Trump. He's doing the opposite of what he should be doing. You're supposed to speak truth to power, but he's not doing that. In fact, 
Donald Trump and Sean Hannity are so close that they talk before bedtime almost every night. So as New York Magazine's Olivia Nuzzi and Joe Darrow explain, their chats begin casually, like how are yous and what's going on. On some days, they speak multiple times, with one calling the other to inform him of the latest developments. White House staff are aware that the calls happen thanks to the president entering a room and announcing I just hung up with Hannity or referring to what Hannity said during their conversations or even ringing Hannity up from his desk in their presence. Generally, the feeling is that Sean is the leader of the outside kitchen cabinet, one White House official said, echoing other staffers current and removed. I was told by one person that Hannity fills the political void left by Steve Bannon, a statement Bannon seemed to agree with. Sean Hannity understands the basic issues of economic nationalism and America First foreign policy at a deeper level than the August staff of Jonathan Chait and the fucking clowns at New York Magazine, he said. The White House official assessed the influence of White House officials and other administration personnel as exactly equal to that of Fox News. But for the most part, policy has taken a backseat on Hannity. Regardless of the news of the day, the overarching narrative of the show is the political persecution of Trump and by extension of Hannity and Hannity's viewers at the hands of the so-called deep state and the Democratic Party and the corrupt mainstream media, a wholly owned subsidiary of both, Everything comes back to special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation into Russia's involvement in the 2016 election, a phony, petty diversion from what should be the real focus, prosecuting Hillary Clinton. Hannity admits to advising Trump, but on the air, he's repeatedly mocked suggestions that he functions as an unofficial chief of staff and criticized the fake news media for not bothering to reach out to him for the truth. A spokesperson for Fox News declined multiple interview requests for this article on Hannity's behalf. More than any other figure of the right-wing infosphere, Hannity has behaved as if he were an extension of the Trump communications department, his daily stream of assertions serving to prop up Trump and, in real time, define what Trumpism is supposed to be. Sean Hannity's program is purely propaganda at this point. If you are a viewer of Sean Hannity and you used to trust him, any and everything he says with regard to Donald Trump should be called into question because he's that close to Donald Trump. That's dangerous. If you are in media, again, your job is to hold the powerful accountable, but he's literally just doing propaganda on behalf of Donald Trump. And the problem is that when you fraternize with people who you're supposed to be holding accountable, that biases your viewpoint. You don't want to hold your friends accountable. You don't. It's awkward, right? So that's why Hannity would never dare to criticize Donald Trump because they are friends. So this is a huge problem, but I'd be remiss if I didn't describe this problem as one that's systemic, because it is an actuality. Journalists try to get buddy-buddy with people in power because this is something that gives them the most important commodity in journalism, and that is access. Now, with Hannity having access to the president, even though this should delegitimize him among his viewers, this is actually cultivating legitimacy among his viewers because it helps him remain credible. It's kind of like how the Pope has credibility because he apparently has a direct line to God, while Sean Hannity has credibility because he has a direct line to Donald Trump, the president, the father of Trumpism. When people, their, their conception of media is so skewed. That's not what media is supposed to be about. Media is supposed to report facts, but instead people can tune into echo chambers and not challenge their beliefs at all.
Now, of course, yes, you're watching a progressive news show. I cover politics from the progressive perspective, but at the same time, I do my best to remain objective and report the facts as they come. So if someone who I respect, like Bernie Sanders, does something that I disagree with, I call him out. I hold him accountable. That's what you're supposed to do if you have a large platform. It's the responsible thing to do. But again, Sean Hannity, what he's doing is not unprecedented. He's not breaking new ground here. This isn't a new low for journalism. I mean, this is the state of cable news shows, really. I mean, Chuck Todd, in 2015, threw a dinner party for Hillary Clinton's communications director, Jennifer Palmieri. George Stephanopoulos, Stephanopoulos, whatever his name is, Snuffleupagus, <laughs> he made a sizable contribution to the Clinton Foundation. Brought people on, didn't disclose that. So, I mean, you see these pundits sucking up to power when they should be speaking truth to power. The position between the powerful and the media should be adversarial. And certainly, Donald Trump calls out the fake news and, you know, he's against CNN and MSNBC. And they try to hold him accountable, even if they do it in the wrong ways. But what Fox News is doing is a disservice to viewers. Because now they're just pushing the official White House narrative. And that is so harmful. That's propaganda on par with state-run media outlets in authoritarian regimes. But it's weird because people only find this problematic if the other side does it. For example, the people, um, the MAGA people who are on the Trump train who lambasted the pro-Clinton pundits for getting too cozy with people on Hillary Clinton's team, well, they're silent about this now. And similarly, the people who had nothing to say then, they're speaking out against Sean Hannity here. I just want people to stop being hacks and for once just exercise a little bit of objectivity. If something is problematic for the other side, chances are it's going to be problematic for your side as well. So when you see these hacky pundits getting cozy with people who they're supposed to keep in check... Call it out. It doesn't matter if it's on the left, on the right. It doesn't matter if it's on uh, MSNBC or Fox News. We want these people to hold powerful people accountable. Their job is to be a check on government tyranny. They're supposed to act as a fourth branch of government, a check on government power, but they're not doing that. And that's just sad. But again, I mean, people who talk about this story, they've got to point out the facts that this is something that's been happening now for a long time. These pundits are sucking up the power because they want access. But with access, basically, it biases their uh, their view. They, they get cozy with these powerful elites, and then they give them favorable coverage. Meanwhile, people who are watching, they don't get an objective take on what's happening. So up until this point, we've been given the runaround with regard to when the FCC's repeal of net neutrality will actually take effect. Now... Originally, it was slated to be officially repealed on April 23rd. However, we learned that the FCC was intentionally delaying its own repeal, presumably to give lobbyists more time to um, fight against state momentum towards net neutrality. We don't know for sure, but that just seems to be the case. But we now know officially when the FCC's repeal of net neutrality will take effect. According to Kaylee Rogers of Vice, after months of inexplicably dragging its feet, the Federal Communications Commission has finally revealed when its net neutrality repeal will go into effect. June 11th. 
Now, on June 11th, these unnecessary and harmful internet regulations will be repealed, and the bipartisan light-touch approach that served the online world well for nearly 20 years will be restored, Ajit Pai, the chairman of the FCC, said in a press release. If I had a nickel for every time I heard Ajit Pai utter the phrase bipartisan light-touch approach, I probably have around $200 because he just repeats this over and over and over and over and over, and his hope is that by repeating it over and over, will begin to believe him, but nobody believes him. In fact, I think that trust in Ajit Pai has actually decreased since he repealed net neutrality. But now that we have a concrete date, now is the time to get our asses in gear. Now is the time to call your state senator, your state representative, and tell him or her to pass their own version of net neutrality at the state level. Now, additionally, we now know that Congress, specifically uh, Senate Democrats, forced a vote to nullify the FCC's repeal of net neutrality using the authority granted to them under the Congressional Review Act. And, holy shit, they actually fucking pulled it off. So, 52 senators voted to save net neutrality, and that includes three Republicans. So, previously, we knew Susan Collins would be voting, in fact, to restore the net neutrality protections. But there were a couple of Republican senators on the fence. That includes Lisa Murkowski and John Kennedy, who previously signaled that he was not going to support this. Even though he maintained for a while that he was on the fence, he introduced a fake net neutrality bill that was basically exactly what internet service provider lobbyists wanted. But thankfully, he proved me wrong here as did Lisa Murkowski, and they both came out to support this. So, this is absolutely huge. This garnered a lot of attention in the press today, with outlets like CBS covering it, CNN covering it. And now, this will advance to the House of Representatives. If it can pass the House it will go to Donald Trump's desk. Now, understand that net neutrality isn't officially saved yet. This is just one of ultimately three steps to nullify the FCC's repeal of net neutrality, but it's still a victory, a victory that we definitely need and will take and we should celebrate. But now we have to put in the work to make sure that this does, in fact, clear the house, which is going to be an uphill battle. So now that this advance, it's time to call your congressional representative and tell him or her to support this in the House. Now, let's be realistic about our chances here. In the event this passes the House, which it seems unlikely, will Donald Trump sign this into law? Probably not, even though there are some inklings about White House H trying to pressure him to support this. Most likely he's going to veto it. But the goal ultimately here is to get this to Donald Trump's desk and force him to take a stand, because up until this point, he's been largely silent about this issue. I mean, he spoke out against net neutrality back in 2015, but when he talked about net neutrality, it was clear he had no idea what he was talking about, because the way he described net neutrality showed that he was just blatantly ignorant on the subject. So we want him, as president, to take a stand, because him vetoing this, that one act will be significant, and hopefully it will 
force cable news outlets to cover this issue once and for all. So at the end of the day, Ajit Pai was initially really happy because he learned a concrete day that he'd be getting what he's been wanting for years. However, now we also have reason to celebrate because we just had a major victory. And make no mistake about it, this would not have been possible without your ongoing grassroots activism. Yes, Democrats have decided to get on board with this issue, but if we hadn't made so much noise about net neutrality, they wouldn't realize just how important this issue was to us. So finally, with this vote, we're getting the media coverage, at least to a certain extent, that net neutrality deserves. And we are showing Ajit Pai that we're not playing games. When he voted to repeal net neutrality, that wasn't the end of it. This shows that we are continuing to fight and we are fighting aggressively to make sure that net neutrality is protected, and it's not just the vote to restore net neutrality using the CRA and the Senate. This is the activism that you are doing, the, that you're engaging in, the momentum that we're seeing around the country at state legislatures. This is huge. So really, I want you to take a moment and just reflect. I mean, we're, the battle isn't over, right? But take a moment and reflect just how effective net neutrality activists have been at keeping this issue a top priority in American politics and not letting it get drowned out by other political issues. Now, before I end this segment, I do want to play a clip from Senator Ed Markey's speech today uh, before the vote because I think he does a really great job at laying out the issue at hand and why net neutrality is so important. So enjoy. The whole country is watching. 86% of all voters support net neutrality. 82% of all Republicans support net neutrality. If it's not broke, don't fix it. It's working. And it works for the smallest voices and for the largest voices. And what these huge internet companies, the internet service providers want to do is change the rules, tilt the playing field. Well, it was a long route to get to this era. We had one telephone company, one cable company, monopolies going into people's homes. It took a lot to get away from that era so that smaller voices, newer voices could be heard. And when that happened, it unleashed trillions of dollars of private sector investment that these software and internet companies, these innovators, were now able to gain access to. They could have done it if the rules had made it possible before we changed the laws in the 1990s. But since then, they have. And they've reinvented. They have reinvented not just the United States of America, but they have reinvented the whole world. And there's a vocabulary which has been created since 1996. Words that now everyone thinks are common. Google, Amazon, eBay, Hulu, YouTube. They didn't exist. They didn't have a role in our society. We had to change the rules in order to make it possible for them. And there's a whole new generation of companies whose names we do not know yet, but because of net neutrality, they will be known. They will be the job creators for the next several decades in our country. And so, ladies and gentlemen, I thank all of the members who participated in this debate. There won't be a more important one that we have, because it goes right to the heart of our identity as a free and open society. So I, I urge 
my fellow senators to vote yes on my Congressional Review Act resolution to restore the net neutrality rules to the books. And Mr. President, uh, I yield back. The yeas are 52, the nays are 47. The joint resolution is passed. Under the leadership of Scott Pruitt, the EPA is not only rolling back crucial environmental protections when their whole job is to protect the environment, but they're also censoring information about climate change and pollution. And this trend of censorship is continuing till this day because Donald Trump influenced the EPA to suppress a new report that would cause a PR headache for them. So according to Matthew Rose of Salon, a new report reveals that President Donald Trump and his head of the Environmental Protection Agency, Scott Pruitt, have managed to realize the worst nightmares of their environmental critics, namely that they would prioritize their political and business interests over the health and safety of the American public. A federal health study on how a certain class of toxic chemicals can endanger human health at much lower levels than previously believed was blocked by the Trump administration according to a report by Politico. The report was due to be released by a wing of the Department of Health and Human Services called the Agency for Toxic Substances and Disease Registry, which had concluded that the chemicals had caused serious water contamination near chemical plants, military bases, and other sites in states like Michigan, New York, and West Virginia. The public, media, and congressional reaction to these numbers is going to be huge. One White House aide, who has not been identified, argued in an email that was forwarded to Trump's appointee for overseeing environmental issues at the Office of Management and Budget. Later, the same staffer wrote in the email that the impact to EPA and the Defense Department is going to be extremely painful. We, the DOD and EPA, cannot seem to get ATSDR to realize the potential public relations nightmare this is going to be. As of yet, the study has still not been published and there is no pending date scheduled for its release. I need you to understand just how absurd this is. They are suppressing information about a toxic chemical that could pose a public health risk, or in fact does pose a public health risk, according to this report, because they don't want to deal with the PR headache that it would cause. So that's how little your life means to Donald Trump's administration. They're willing to risk you getting poisoned so people don't make a big deal about a new scientific finding. And again, this is coming from an agency that is supposed to protect the environment. It's literally titled the Environmental Protection Agency. And they're doing everything to undo protections we previously put in place to protect the environment. But here, a toxic chemical that uh, causes harm to human beings? Meh. I just don't want to deal with the headache, guys. That's your job. The government is supposed to look out for the interests of the American people. It's supposed to look out for the health and safety of the American people. That's why we give you our tax dollars. We give the government money, and in exchange, they're supposed to take care of us. They're supposed to fund these types of studies and tell us what could and couldn't potentially be harmful to us, and here they are suppressing that information, shamelessly so. And the reason why they did this is because they probably didn't think that this would get out. But now this information is out to the public. But thankfully for Donald Trump, 
Nobody's really talking about it. Have you heard about this on Rachel Maddow's show? Have you heard about this on CNBC, Fox News? Of course not. Because, see, this is not really a headline that would give these cable news shows a lot of clicks. So why talk about something that isn't really going to benefit you? It may be beneficial to the American people for them to talk about this, but in terms of their revenue, not really going to affect that. So there's nothing we can really do about this. The information is still being suppressed. Hopefully it will be published, but just the mere fact that they tried to suppress information that's crucial to us, it's disgusting. How could they do this? and still claim to care about humanity and human dignity, and they claim to have the moral high ground. And again, Donald Trump's administration is comprised largely of individuals who claim to be evangelical Christians. Is this really what Jesus would want you to do? Suppress information that's crucial to the public? I mean, this is information that we need to know in order to protect ourselves, to protect our children. And they're trying to hide it from us because they don't want to deal with the hassle. That's your job. You shouldn't have taken a job in government if you didn't want to deal with all of the issues that are entailed with that job. Resign. Let someone else take your place then. I'm not surprised by this at all. Who sees this headline and reads about this story and can honestly tell me that they're surprised? I'm not surprised in the slightest. This is exactly what Donald Trump tries to do. I mean, when Scott Pruitt became the EPA head, one of the first things he did was remove any references to climate change from the EPA's website, you see Republicans who claim to care so much about free speech banning legislators in um, legislatures across the country from even uttering the words climate change. Unbelievable. The Republican Party has to be the most cruelest, corrupt, duplicitous, morally reprehensible party, or version of the party, rather, in its history. But yet... They're in control of all three branches of government. Unreal. I'm here with Allison Hartson, who is a progressive Democrat running in conjunction with brand new Congress and Justice Democrats. And she is challenging one of the most corrupt conservative Democrats in the United States Senate, Diane Feinstein. So, Allison, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thanks for having me here, Mike. So I, I wanted to ask you, because your your background is incredibly interesting to me. So you were actually a teacher, and you decided to leave your career as a teacher to work for Wolfpack, which is an organization, for those who don't know, that aims to secure a constitutional amendment to get money out of politics. So my question to you is, even though money in politics is an issue that is really important to a lot of progressives like myself, it's clearly really important to you, perhaps more so than other people, because you left your career for it. So can you explain why this issue is so huge? Because it is the foundation, the root cause of every single issue that we care about. And I came to that conclusion as a teacher and as a member of the working class, whether we are looking or fighting for a green economy to replace our military economy, or if we are looking to get Medicare for all, living wage tied to inflation, uh, rehabilitation over retribution for a criminal justice system, the list goes on and on. All of it comes back to the corrupting influence of money in our political system. For me, it was really all of those things because I saw how every single one of those issues affected my students and affected their families. So I taught in a low income district 
that serves predominantly first and second generation students from Mexico. I taught English and then I also designed and taught an intervention program for students who were at risk of not graduating high school. And my philosophy going into being a teacher and choosing to work in a low income neighborhood was that the actual root cause of everything in our in, in the world, in our country is education the lack of equal opportunity for an equal education, essentially. And so I thought, you know, if I could help to reform our educational system throughout the country, that's how we would be able to change the world. And after teaching for 10 years, what I realized was that there's a, an even deeper, more systemic root cause than education. And again, it's this corruption. And so for me, my entire life has been about how do you solve problems, being a problem solver, really? And you can't solve problems without taking the time to identify the root cause, whatever it is. And that goes for our healthcare system, that goes for our criminal justice system, and it also goes for this as well, for our entire government. What is what is really um, preventing our government from doing its job in representing everyday Americans. And when once I identified that for myself and had this, this epiphany that I'm beating my head against a brick wall as a teacher, all of us educators are, it was a really tough decision for me to decide to leave my career as an educator because that's really my heart. That's where my passion is. But we have to do this a lot. There are so many people around the country right now who are making sacrifices with a career choice that we once had now moving into politics because we realize how urgent these issues are. And that's why I'm now running for U.S. Senate against Dianne Feinstein, because she is the epitome of what's wrong right now with our government. Yeah, I actually wanted to get to some of her donors. So... There's a long, long list, so I can't get to all of them, but some of the most prominent ones include Time Warner, Comcast, AT&T, Wells Fargo, Morgan Stanley, Northrop Grumman, which is a defense contractor. So with all of her multinational corporation donors and all of her billionaire donors, you have somehow managed, without taking corporate money, to actually outraise Dianne Feinstein for a couple of months. Can you explain how you did that? Because I know that you're not taking corporate PAC money. Um, you're raising your money with individual small donors. How the hell did you pull this off? Um, and what was the response in California after that happened? Uh, the response was was pretty significant. And what I've done is I've outraised her and the other corporate candidate combined in small dollar donations. That's huge. Yeah. And, and I've continued to do so. So that came out after the um, final quarter of 2017. And then the last report that the last FEC report just came out as well. And I am dominating the entire field, every single person running in this race. I have raised more money in small dollar donations as a percentage than anybody else. Um, my percentage is 72% small dollar donors. That's $200 or less. And Diane Feinstein is at, let me find this here to make sure that I'm right on this. Her small dollars are at 5%. Wow. And, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the other the other corporate candidate in this race uh, running as a quote unquote progressive small dollar donations is at under 8%. And again, mine's at 72. So the way that I did that was essentially already having experience in politics. I 
Prior to this, you know, with Wolfpack, I was a national director of a political organization working to get big money out of politics, working to end this corruption and strike right at the root of what is happening in our country and around the world, quite frankly. So I already have um, quite a connection throughout the state of California. Uh, California is the first state where I led the charge to get our Wolfpack measure passed through the state legislature. I went on to do the same thing in New Jersey, Illinois, et cetera, organizing tens of thousands of volunteers throughout the country, working with legislators in red states, blue states, purple states, et cetera. And so uh, that network has certainly helped. I already have that um, reputation. And then it has also helped as well to, uh, you know, be working with TYT, you know, Jenk Uger is the, the founder and host of TYT, as you know, of course, and he is my political advisor. Um, he's one of them. And so through all of, you know, all of those aspects combined, we have a really, really strong team for my campaign. And, you know, I've always said that Whenever we are voting for a candidate, we're not voting for that one person. We're voting for their cabinet. We're voting for their team. And I have a really strong team of people with my campaign who understand how systemic these issues are. And people see that. People know this. I, I think people are donating because of my experience um, working in politics and working on this issue. And, and, um, and then, you know, as successful as my campaign has continued to be, success begets success. And one thing that is really puzzling to me about this situation is because, I mean, you're, this is really a David and Goliath scenario here. You're going up against Dianne Feinstein. Her net worth, I mean, just excluding um, the multinational corporations who are contributing to her campaign, she's worth $70 million. Her husband is a billionaire. So they have all the power and influence in the world, and you manage to um, eclipse her in terms of donations. But even with that being said, even though that clearly by American political standards, that should theoretically make you the favorite, um, there's basically virtually uh, no coverage of your campaign whatsoever. Anytime I see articles referencing her primary challenge, it's with Kevin DeLeon as the progressive. No mention of you, no mention of another progressive, David Hildebrand. And you were even left off of polls. So that way it seems as though you, you don't even exist. So why do you think this is happening? I know that that's kind of a, a really complex issue, but... It seems as though there's almost like this, I don't want to use the word conspiracy, but it seems like the forces that be, you know, within the Democratic Party establishment are trying to pretend like you don't exist. So why is that the case? How can they not pay attention to you if you really are raising this much money? And that's pretty much the only way that we measure success in America for campaigns. It's, it's, um, it's a feedback loop think tank bubble that exists in the establishment. When we talk about the establishment, it's not just legislators, it's not just lobbyists, it's not just corporations, it's also our media, and it's people who are trying to rise up in media as well. People want connections. They want to themselves, you know, they have their career to look out for. And so they're thinking about how do I make sure that I'm a credible person? They want to continue to, to rub elbows and, and get that next promotion. Combine that with being spread thin with being really extremely busy, with having all of these races to cover, with having all of these candidates to cover. Uh, it's so on one hand, 
really trying to empathize with these journalists, I understand how difficult it can be to make sure they're covering me on top of all of the other races in California that are pretty contentious. Um, but on, at, the, at the same time, I find it in, in, inexcusable because I do think it's their responsibility if they're going to be writing an article or doing a report on a particular race that they at least take 20 minutes to do research on all of the candidates and see who else they should be including in their coverage, at least to, to just mention. Uh, so I experienced this with Wolfpack. We, the, the kind of propaganda that I saw around those who were fighting us at Wolfpack, and, and it wasn't just Republicans, it was actually more Democrats than Republicans, was quite an experience and i saw how it and I, I experienced it personally just how fast it works where really credible people in the media are working so fast to pump out stories that they trust another credible person in the media whose article they read who trusts another credible person's news report that they saw on tv and it and it it happens in a blink of an eye and before you know it the the misinformation is out and people don't know what to believe or they automatically believe what they read or what they hear it's 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 very problematic and so it's naturally going to happen in um in races like this it, on top of the fact that we know the establishment doesn't want us to to actually be in office they don't want us to be in dc they don't want us to be in the state legislatures and they've actually made it quite clear i think it was recently was it bill clinton who just recently said make sure you keep the bernie crats out it we've was. seen yeah and we've seen what the what the um the dnc has done to to remove the the bernie crats from having a say and uh, so, you know, all of those things combined, like you said, it's complicated, but it all is it is something we need to be talking about. That said, there has been some progress in that regard with my campaign, which is exciting. The, the L.A. Times has covered me not as much as they should, of course. Um, San Francisco Chronicle, uh, to their credit, they, they did cover me when enough of uh, people really reached out to them and said, hey, you, please, please, please make sure you cover this person and do your job. Um, there's There's been a few others that are, are starting to pick up and, and pay attention as we've seen, we're starting to see right now. So it's working. It's just taking a lot of work on our part. Uh, we have to be super creative with, with money because even though I've outraised uh, both of them, they, I still have a lot less money than they do. So Diane Feinstein has $15 million right now in the coffers for this race alone. Mm. Five of it she gave to her uh, of her own money to the campaign. Wow. And yeah. And the average U.S. Senate race costs $10 million. I have less than 400000 And what I've done with that money, well, it shows you that I've run a nonprofit. <laughs> so I know. And it also shows you that I really grew up from the working class. I know how to stretch a dollar. Um, so we've, we've, we've been extremely successful in the staff that we've been able to hire that works then to support the over nearly 1800 volunteers that we now have to help us. And that's, that's to massive. combat. It is. It's super massive. And so, I mean, you talk about grassroots and showing that it can work, you know, it's a lot of work, but I think it's also a lot of work probably to have a campaign with a lot of money. It's just, you're, you're spending your time and all of that work having expensive dinners with people, um, having expensive drinks with people. And instead what I'm doing is, is having 
drinks and dinner at low budge restaurants uh, with with my you know everyday volunteers and and constituents where we just kind of meet up at a coffee shop or we meet up at a brewery and say okay hey what are we going to do to come together and make this happen uh, and and through that and some creative means using social media and not overlooking the youth vote, the millennial vote, we are seeing some pretty good momentum right now. That's that's really great to hear. Um, I did want to ask you about the recent losses of progressive candidates in Ohio. We had Dennis Kucinich. He lost his gubernatorial bid. And we had Paula Jean Swergen in uh, West Virginia lose. So when I covered that, I saw a lot of demoralized people, a lot of the comments saying, man, this sucks. It feels like we're never going to win. How do you basically reinvigorate your staff and on a broader scale, the progressive movement who feels like taking on the establishment is impossible. So, I mean, how do you respond individually to that? And what do you have to say to people who feel like it's a lost cause, you know, across the country? I, I think all we have to do is look at history and realize that it's actually a win. I, I really don't see them as losses. You have technical wins and technical losses who actually got in the seat. Um, but then there's the progress that we make Look, how many times did Bernie Sanders lose when he ran for office? And then he kept going. He never gave up. And look at where he is today. Imagine if he had given up after losing the first time, after losing the second time. There are a number of people throughout history who, have, who had more losses than they had wins. But it was finally the, the breakthrough that they had that became a turning point in history for the rest of us. We have, to re we have to keep in mind that progress is not always necessarily tangible, but to, to keep up that hope, and it doesn't just have to be hope. We, again, we can look at, at, these, at these, um, these historical figures. But uh, also, anybody in politics can explain also how that works as well. So for example, take legislation. The average piece of legislation takes three times or three terms for it to actually pass. And that's because it takes time for you to warm up the legislators, warm up the public to learning about it, to becoming knowledgeable about it, to um, you know fighting back against their original fears for change. This is all like psychology, right? And so the work that it also takes to, to um, move a piece of legislation through committee after committee and the number of people who are going to fight you for political reasons, let alone the policy reasons. And you keep coming back. There are so many stories of legislators working for 10 years to finally get their legislation passed. If we gave up after the first time, the second time, the third time, it's going to be, as far as I'm concerned, our fault what happens to this country. We can't give up. And we are obviously making progress. I do believe that the people who are now starting to denounce corporate PACs and who are now starting to talk about Medicare for all and Diane Feinstein just said she's, you know, basically reversing her, her position, her lifelong position on, on legalizing marijuana, which by the way, came one week after I put out a hit ad on her. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I do think it's all lip service and we've seen enough of that, but when they start to move, it shows that we are making a difference what we have to just get better at is not ever letting up. Do not mm -hmm. believe them when they say it. Hold their feet to the fire. And, uh, and so what Paula Jean has pulled off, what, what Justice Democrats has pulled off in just this like one, two years that they've been around is, is a blessing to this country. 
And it's, it's just, it's nothing short of what I think just a gigantic success. The more people who jump on and support, you know, donate money to Justice Democrats, they need it. They're grassroots too. Donate money to these candidates. We need it. Because as much as we can push those candidates that we're in the race against, and as much as even one of the 52 of us running can win, that opens up the door for the next person. That's great. Yeah. And um, you kind of touched on something about Dianne Feinstein that I wanted to dive a little bit deeper into, which is her policy positions, which um, I do find it hilarious that she did reverse her stance on cannabis after you put out the hit ad that was amazing but there's there's some things in here and i wrote down some things just off the top of my head she voted for the patriot act she voted to reauthorize it twice 2006-2011 um she voted for CAFTA. she voted for bill clinton's crime bill his welfare reform bill which gutted welfare uh, she voted for the iraq war she called the snowden leaks an act of treason and then just last year she was holding a town hall and she refused to support medicare for all and she used a Republican talking point to explain why she wouldn't support it, saying that she's not in favor of a government takeover, a quote, government takeover of healthcare in this country. So I wanted you to be able to um, kind of give my viewers a point of contrast between you and Dianne Feinstein, because you are progressive and you do support Medicare for all. Can you so can you just kind of talk about what your policy and legislative priorities would be? and how you actually are more in line with the liberal voters of California than a conservative like Dianne Feinstein? Yeah, uh, you went through a really good number of them there. She is, she's bad on all of it. You know, she, like I was saying earlier, she is the epitome of the establishment of the elite of the corporate class. And she is kind of this law and order legislator from like the 1970s hard on crime hard on the drug on drugs on drug on war uh, war on drugs excuse me and and as far as i'm concerned um i mean it's the exact opposite for me my my top issues are medicare for all uh $15 minimum wage tied to inflation but quite frankly i think that by the time we get that federally it's going to have to be higher so i like to say that we really actually need a living wage is what is really important and we have to make sure we tie that to inflation college for all is a no-brainer uh we you know we we had free college here in california other countries have it we know it works same thing with medicare for all a single payer system um you know i i am absolutely 100 percent against the patriot the patriot act and and uh, warrantless spying the I'm very concerned about the um, monopolization of of these you know corporations and corporate mergers and you know she voted to to overturn Glass Steagall and she has uh, voted for the Bush tax cuts which is you know essentially giving corporations loopholes to not have to pay their taxes as well as the as the wealthy and, and herself it's a large, <laughs> and herself that's right she's giving her herself a tax break and her husband, her billionaire husband. And so the list goes on and on with her. It's, uh, it's, it's pretty obvious that she just, you know, she's had 25 years in Congress and uh, in the Senate. She had another 25 years as mayor um, within of San Francisco. So she's been re a representative for half a century and she hasn't progressed with the times.
And the fact that just a year ago, a little over a year ago, she's repeating a Republican talking point that it's going to be a government takeover of healthcare. She knows better. She is, she is like the epitome of a politician that says what she needs to, when she needs to, to manipulate the voters. So she says that to move people away from Medicare for all. Now she's running for office and she stays away from that. And she starts talking about how all of a sudden she's going to support states' rights and she's going to support marijuana. Um, you know, she didn't do anything to stand up for DACA prior to January. And then all of a sudden she flipped on that and did it in, in January um, when she saw that there was some heat in this race. She's, she's, she's just not an honest actor. Um, she's an honest politician, but she's not an honest actor. <laughs> so before we go, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask about a pretty um, big, I don't know if you would say benefit or something that's bad for her, uh, that happened to Dianne Feinstein with regard to her re-election bid. So she had an establishment figure, perhaps the biggest establishment figure on the Democratic Party side, come out and endorse her, uh, Barack Obama. So I just wanted to get your response to that because I, I kind of ripped the endorsement in a video that I posted, but I want to hear what you have to say about that because that really got under my skin. <laughs> Yeah, you know, for, for me, it didn't get under my skin. I, I thought it was hilarious. And I thought I, I actually think it's it's quite the compliment because it shows that she's worried and that the establishment is worried about her seat. And I have this theory. I, I was just talking to Jenk about this on TYT on a, a couple nights ago. And it, it, it dawned on me during our conversation that it's very possible what the establishment is doing right now is circling the wagons. Are you there? You're starting to freeze for me. Yes, Can you I am see here. Me? Okay, good. Um, that they're, they are definitely circling the wagons to protect their own. And after the DCCC attacked a couple of the Justice Democrats and it backfired, that they're probably now doing the opposite and going for the positive uh, tactic. Mm, that makes and sense. And seeing like, yeah, let's take somebody who liberals think is progressive and have him endorse Feinstein. And, you know, it's smoke and mirrors, of course. We progressives who have been following politics, we know that Barack Obama is not a progressive. And if you go to my Twitter handle, it's, it's Hartson for C-A, uh, F-O-R is spelled out. Hartson for CA is my handle for everything. Uh, you can actually find my uh, a tweet I just put out yesterday about this video where I'm talking about this. But he's not a progressive. You know, he he extended essentially the the Bush wars and multiplied them. The number of drone strikes that he did, he 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 exported essentially uh, more undocumented citizens, as I like to refer to them, from our country than any other and i mean the list goes on about you know what did he what did he do anything about the bush tax cuts no he basically kept them um so he's not progressive and look uh, there are some things that we can point to that barack obama did a good job on and i will give credit where credit is due 100 percent um, but for him to come out and endorse Diane Feinstein, for me, all it does is actually prove what many of us have been saying for years, that he is no progressive. He's a conservative. Right. That's exactly it. So, yeah, I, I, I kind of thought that you would say something along those lines, because 
to me, it, it irritated me. But at the same time, it did communicate to me that they're terrified. She's afraid that her career is now in jeopardy. So, I mean, when whenever you see these types of really high-profile endorsements, when they're actually pretty rare, it really sends a big message that the establishment is terrified. So that's all thanks to the great campaign you're running. So before you go, can you tell us where we can help out your campaign and contribute and potentially even canvas for you? At? Yeah, um, go to my website, alisonhartson.com. It's super simple, A-L-I-S-O-N-H-A-R-T-S-O-N.com. And on there, you can find out how to volunteer, how to donate. Um, we have a number of ways that you can volunteer, whether you can canvas or phone bank or help with social media or graphic design. So many people are offering a, a, a number of different services, making videos for us, et cetera. And so um, just do that. Go to my handles as well, uh, whether you're on Twitter or Facebook, Instagram. We are trying to make ourselves as available as possible. And the primary is June 5th, correct? The primary is June 5th, but mail-in ballots are starting right now. And okay. so that's really important because in California, our mail-in ballots count for, this is a huge margin, but anywhere from 30 to 70%, wow. depending on the election, but it's huge. And so we need to be getting out the vote right now because of those mail-in ballots. So those, again, those in May 21st, last day to register to vote is May 29th, and actual election day is on June 5th. Okay, well, thanks so much for coming on the show. Um, Thank good you. luck. I appreciate it. Thanks for all you do. Well, that's all I got for you guys today. Thank you so much for tuning in, and I want to send a special thank you to our guest this week, Allison Hartson. And also, as usual, I can't not end the episode without thanking all of our Patreon and PayPal contributors who helped the show to not just survive, but thrive as well. Thank you all so much. I'll see you next week. Take care.